1st of January 2019, Yorkshire. The new inn, the village pub, always lays on a quarter of an hour of fireworks at midnight, which we can see, if not actually from our bed, then certainly from the bedroom window. Brushing my teeth this morning, I catch a glimpse of my New Year self and am depressed to see how depleted I'm looking, though not quite as much as Raymond Briggs, who's pretty much my age and a good documentary on whom we watched earlier yesterday evening. He's almost two-dimensional, thin to a knife blade. Still, he drives, which, after the latest bout of arthritis in my ankle, I'm not sure I'm going to be able to do. 7th of January On the war memorial at Malham is the inscription Live thou for England, we for England died. I don't know if this is a quotation or an injunction that was, as it were, custom-made, but I find it, if only slightly, misplaced, and I don't wholly concur, as the sentiment reduces what was a sacrifice to more of a bargain. We did this for you, now see you do your bit in return, by living in a way the dead might have approved, whatever that might be. It's an admonition, which I don't like, but war memorials often take this finger-wagging tone. Do better. 8th of January. My six-monthly aorta scan at University College Hospital. Due at 12.30, I'm early, so that by 12.45 I'm back home. It's a model service. Today's radiographer, a bearded young man who asks about Alleluia and shows me the screen and how he measures the width of my quite small aneurysms. Good young medics always cheer me up and offer hope, not for my future, but for the world in general. 19th of January Wake this morning thinking of a line that I've always remembered Bert Lancaster delivering in a costume drama. Caught out after a curfew, he says, I am apothecary Manzoni on an errand of mercy for the sisters. What the film was, I've no idea. The Crimson Pirate? Doubtless some LRB reading cinema buff, even sillier than I am, will be able to tell me. 26th of January We're comfortably ensconced in our weekend first seats at King's Cross when John Burko comes along the platform. Not quite the elegant, slightly flamboyant figure one sees in the commons, he's in a scruffy suede jacket and, according to the trolley attendant, sitting in standard class, where he's happy to have a conversation about Brexit and related matters. I'm hoping he will come down the train at some point when I shake his hand and say how much of the country is with him. However, when we get to Grantham, my eye is taken by an old man with an enchanting blonde Labrador, and now Burko comes along the platform, and the dog makes a great fuss of him, the old man equally delighted. 9th of February this evening we watched the much-vaunted film The Favourite, which is good if a bit, and perhaps deliberately, 
casual about period details and language, letters becoming male, and a battle I had in the madness of King George, the occasional OK and fine. The film owes something else to ours, beginning slightly as I intended to begin, with the court seen from the cramped perspective of the royal servants. Not looking at the monarch is made something of a feature, though not as specifically as we tried to do, and our film was more physical than this is allowed to be. Cunt occurs quite often, possibly less as a deliberate attempt to shock than to show how down-to-earth these courtiers were. Or it may be just laziness, there being some skill in inventing euphemisms or devising elaborations that get round obscenity. Still, an enjoyable film, if an anachronistic one. For example, the opposition is not a feature of Parliament in the 18th century. A pedantic point. 11th of February. A piece in the TLS by Laura Freeman about how hunger was reflected in the novels of the post-war period. I suppose it's because it's to do with novels, and therefore middle class and upwards, but it hardly relates to my own childhood memories. I have no particular memories of wartime food, and even if I had, a working-class family in Leeds wouldn't have been dining out much except fish and chips in the cafes of department stores, like Hitchin's, fish and chips, tea and bread and butter, one and nine, with Schofield's slightly higher up the scale. There was Harry Ramsden's at Geisley, where we would often have just chips when we went hiking across the fields to Burley and Wharfdale. But what I don't recall is any longing for food or for elaborate food that coloured the everyday. On the contrary, what sticks in the mind is how tasty some very ordinary meals were. The first new potatoes, for instance, so delicious one would save them up until the last when having one's dinner, i.e. lunch. The first strawberries, similarly, gooseberries, plums, all bought and queued for at the co-op on Armley Ridge Road. Even the nowadays much reviled spam and corned beef seemed quite tasty to me then, more so than the stewing steak we had regularly, as Dad was a butcher at Armley Lodge Road Co-op. He was either very scrupulous or quite timid, so we never had more than the ration, the meat always overcooked, and never the grander cuts. The first proper steak I had was in the army in Cambridge when I was 18, and which shocked me as it was rare, blood never having figured on the Bennett dining table, even in its relatively refined form of black pudding. Some food we did consider too lowly to eat, tripe, for instance, which was a favourite of my grandma, and chitterlings from the same oggery-buggery pie shop down Tong Road in Worthley. Until I started to read the novels and diaries of the period, I naively assumed that the food the Bennets had eaten at Halliday Place was much the same as the food everyone ate in the war, regardless of social status. So I was still capable of being shocked in my twenties when I read in Nancy Mitford's The Pursuit of Love, a novel not, I think, mentioned by Laura Freeman, of the ration-dodging suppers available to the upper and middle classes 
and also to delight when the bolter's lover turns out to be a Spanish chef capable, and indeed only too pleased, to produce delicious pre-Elizabeth David food for the ravenous radlets. 13th of February God's honour, we used to swear as boys. This remembered in the middle of an acute attack of arthritis pain this morning, when I marooned on the sofa, cold, thirsty but unable to move. I don't know which way to turn, meaning exactly that. The pills make my mind slide. A letter from Oxford last week, asking if I would like to give the Wayne Fleet lecture. Rupert, who's only half listening and knows nothing of academic distinction. Why, what do you know about ballet? Me. Why should I know about ballet? Rupert. Well, that must be what they want you for. Why? Because it's the Wayne Sleep Lecture. An inch-bald morning, blue sky, bare trees, every detail plain. Fourth of March. I'm rereading, or reading properly, James Stoughton's book on the art historian Kenneth Clark. I hadn't realised how apposite for these days is Yeats's quite familiar and hackneyed quotation, Things fall apart, the centre cannot hold, mere anarchy is loose upon the world, the best lack all conviction, while the worst are full of passionate intensity. And more immediately, Clark himself was, I quote, also shocked by the hostility of the townspeople of Petworth towards Petworth Park, and wrote to the Minister of Transport, John Payton, I can see what a problem this kind of democratic sentiment poses for the Department of the Environment. It's certainly an argument against government by referendum. I suppose on the same grounds, one could argue in favour of selling the contents of the National Gallery and using the site for a gigantic funfair. I think what had happened was a uh, motorway was proposed through Petworth Park. In these cases, the government have to understand the word democracy in a philosophical sense rather than a quantitative sense. A bit subtle, though, for Nigel Farage. 13th of March. Getting on my back to go for the paper this morning, I overbalance, possibly because of an outlying gust from Storm Gareth, and fall heavily in the road. I lie there for a minute or two, and it's Adrian, one of the builders from next door, who picks me up. I haven't broken anything, but it's the third time I've come off in the last six months. It leaves me shaken and bruised, and Rupert shaken too when he comes downstairs. Now I lie on the sofa with my right thigh, or whatever the outside of the thigh is called, sprained. Though pain in one's upper leg is less disabling than pain in the foot or the ankle, which I regularly have. However, sedate though they are, I think my cycling days unnumbered. 16th of March Into my head comes a line from a history textbook of more than 60 years ago, 
Luther, having affixed his protest to the doors of the cathedral in Wittenberg in 1517, made the sign of a Landsknecht who had delivered a telling stroke. It comes from a textbook, Europe in Renaissance and Reformation, 1453-1660, to by Mary Hollings, which we used in our history classes under H. H. Hill. I imagine most of us remembered this quote and trotted it out in school certificate a year or so later. And my only thought now is how wearisome it must have been for the examiner reading it again and again. I suppose the Lansknecht's equivalent gesture today would be yes and a raised fist. Rupert says, I can't even say yes in the way that I'm supposed to say it. He's deeply embarrassed if I ever say anything like that. 17th of March. More days on the sofa. I watched three coins in the fountain and remember an Italian actor who had a brief vogue in Hollywood in the 1950s, Rosano Brazzi. Notable in our family because he was always mispronounced by Auntie Kathleen as Rosie Brazzano. 25th of March. British gas has seemingly relocated, as this morning I find myself sending my usual king's ransom to Northampton and Blaise Pascal House. 30th of March. The magazine Rupert Edits, The World of Interiors, is consistently good, the houses interestingly chosen and from across the world, and with every issue, some of them mammoth, a real treat. Occasionally, though, they do parody themselves, as today. Tormented by the dearth of chic shower curtains, Lisa Fine resolved to plug the gap. And now a big hole in this year's diary when in April I was found to need an open-heart operation, leaking aorta, aneurysm and blocked artery. With no symptoms to speak of, it came as a complete surprise and knocked me out for three months, with the diary unreadable and illegible. Blame the anaesthetic. So you did keep writing it? Well, I did, but it literally was absolutely... You couldn't read it, and you couldn't... If you could have read it, it would have made no sense. It's it's uh, it's extraordinary how... Uh, apparently, I didn't make any sense for about two weeks. I didn't think I was in London. I thought I was in Yorkshire. Uh, I thought uh, Rupert had deserted me, uh, and... Uh, it was awful. I'm really terrible. I think if I had given, had I known and been given the choice, I wouldn't have had the operation. But uh, presumably, it did me some good. I don't know. Fourth mm. of July, a letter from the Philip Larkin Society, reminding me that I'm an honorary vice president, which I was unaware of. I've never been an enthusiastic member, partly because Larkin wasn't particularly keen on my stuff or keen on my being keen on his, which I am. Amos, Kingsley, was very much of the same mind. It wasn't this, though, that put me off. What made me dubious about the society was the degree of enthusiasm felt by the members, 
with all the poetic locations pinpointed and Larkin clasped ever more tightly to the bosom of Hull, along with his sister and his cousins and his aunts. The risk is admittedly slight, but I am fearful of such detailed posthumous scrutiny. I don't want to be hollified, though I hope I wouldn't do what Larkin did and have my diary shredded when the breath has scarcely left my body. These days, when in the circumstances I'm not getting much done, well-wishers think to comfort one by instancing what one has done already. This is no reassurance. One's back catalogue is more of a tribunal. One is arraigned before it, and the current work, or lack of it, judged. 7th of July Sam Barnett has been on the Pride March. Four and a half hours. I wouldn't have agreed to be homosexual if I'd known it was going to take that long. 30th of July, Yorkshire. Thunder, which is somehow old-fashioned. A quotation from Edward Gibbon. I will not suppose any premature decay of the mind or body, but I must reluctantly observe that two causes, the abbreviation of time and the failure of hope, will always tinge with a browner shade the evening of life. 1st of August, Yorkshire. A couple of years ago we planted some Lichnis coronaria by the back gate, and in our prolonged absence this summer it has seeded itself in the stone trough by the back door, with a lone outpost in a crack between the paving stones. I love its piercing pink, first seen a whole bed of it round a tree in the garden of Great Chalfield Manor, a National Trust house in Wiltshire. When I inquired for it at a garden centre, it was dismissed as a weed. Never tire of Dad's army, which I must have seen a hundred times, and in particular the vicar and the verger, the petulant his reverence and the toadying Mr. Yateman are an inspired pairing. 3rd of August, Yorkshire we put flowers from the garden on Dad's grave on the day he died, 45 years ago, and I have a vision of the pair of them. Dad in his shirt sleeves and waistcoat, Mam in her shiny straw hat, both of them never able to keep their faces straight when being photographed. In the back garden, butterflies cluster on the Budlia, mostly red admirals, which look black from behind, with the cabbage whites preferring the cat mint. Good remark by Francis Bacon, the painter. No point in being both old and shy. He did, he, he did have a lot of really good sense, did Francis Bacon, underneath all the, you know, the knockabouts and what whatnot. He was asked why he didn't take uh, the CH and the OM. He said, oh, I couldn't. So ageing. Anyway, 7th of August. Lying on the sofa with my aching ankle, I remember that the first time I came across arthritis was in the film East of Eden, seen at the Odeon Oxford in 1955. 
Joe Van Fleet played James Dean's mother with what I suppose were arthritic hands, which she kept touching. I'm not sure I knew what was wrong. She was a brothel keeper, but I wasn't sure about that either. 20th of August, a conversation. Me, I've not been well. I've had a heart bypass. Them, well, you're a writer. That's just what you need. 1st of September, Yorkshire. Driving the back way home from Settle, we run into the Lachlan cows, around 40 of them, swaying along the lane en route to being milked. They're undeterred by the car, sidling past on both sides, though with the windows open they display varying degrees of interest, some shoving their heads in and sniffing round, though without finding much to detain them. None moves, the overall impression being that their lives are more absorbing than ours. Cows and I go back a long way. Our earliest association when I was six years old at the farm near Pateley Bridge, where we were unofficially evacuated. I used to help feed the calves. I had a bucket of slops, which the calf would lick to bits, but I wasn't strong enough to get its head out of my bucket, and had to summon the help of Mrs. Weatherhead, who put up with no nonsense. Milking, though, I never managed. 21st of September Read the second volume of memoirs by the Wigtown bookseller, Sean Bithell, which is as absorbing as the first, though it's harder to be as patient as Bithell is with some of his hangers-on. Elliot, a real pain. One entry particularly interests me. Once, when I was clearing books from a house near Kirkubri, I spotted a set of very small spiral library steps, I asked the woman whose books I was buying if it was for children, to which she replied that it had been custom-made for Jimmy Clitheroe, the diminutive star of radio and television during the 1960s. She and her husband had helped clear the contents of his mother's house after they had both died. He had lived with her and had died from an accidental overdose of sleeping pills on the day of her funeral. I bought Jimmy Clitheroe's library steps from her for £20. Years ago, when I still lived in Gloucester Crescent, Camden Town, the bell rang one afternoon, and on the doorstep was Morrissey, who was briefly living round the corner. We hadn't met, but his opening question was as abrupt as it was unexpected. Did you know Jimmy Clitheroe? I hadn't and only occasionally heard him in what was then the wireless on a Saturday dinner time. Morrissey, though, seemed to regard the pair of us as contemporaries. It turned out that the diminutive comedian was only one of the stars that interested the singer. The more tangential, the better. On another occasion, also on the doorstep, his opening question was, Does the name Avis Bunnage mean anything to you? So reading Sean Bittle and ever helpful, it occurs to me that though the singer's preoccupations may have moved on in the intervening years, a possible home for Clitheroe's Bijou Library steps might be with the Pope of Mope. 11th of October 
Some Frears rings to say that Michael Neve has died, and I sit in the front room and think about him. He was a great chronicler, a remembrancer, recording stuff one had said and funny remarks so that one felt a bigger personality or a more three-dimensional one. He was unpredictable, dangerous and liable to let cats out of bags, but a great enthusiast and an appreciator. He had gusto, an almost Elizabethan zest and enthusiasm. Generous-spirited and magnanimous, he made his friends into legends. He, he was totally indiscreet. Anything you told him could be guaranteed to go, you know, instantly around, do the rounds. Anything to do with sex, he would tell anybody. Uh, he, uh, it was fatal. Anyway. 19th of October. A day when, had either of us been well enough, we would have gone on the march, which, thanks to Oliver Letwin's amendment, turned out marginally more hopeful than I was expecting. Looking for a book to read in bed, I take down, as I think, Jeff Dyer's The Missing of the Somme. It seems less chatty than I remember, and it's only when I come to the end of the first chapter on the Thiepval Arch that I realise it's not by Jeff Dyer, but, though equally good, The Memorial to the Missing of the Somme by the late Gavin Stamp. Today, with Brexit once more in the balance, the end of the first chapter seems appetite. How curious, but how significant, that one of the finest works of British architecture of the 20th century should stand not in Britain itself, but on the opposite side of the English Channel. And up comes another appropriate quotation though from someone unlikely to be a Remainer, Philip Larkin. And gravitating with it to this ground, which he once heard was proper to grow wise in, if only that so many dead lie round. Put them together, and it's another reason why we should not leave. We belong with our dead. 16th of November As I grow older, I see less and less reason for varying my wardrobe. It's true that, without being particularly clothes-conscious, I've by now accumulated enough clobber to last me the rest of my days. I'm occasionally short of a shirt, but a tie never. Even so, I'm slow to ring the changes and find myself wearing the same tie for weeks at a time. I must have twenty or thirty ties, most of them from the charity shops haunted by Rupert, where one can still find the plain-coloured, narrow ties I've always gone in for. The one I find myself most often wearing, though, looks like and maybe is an old school tie, silk-seeming, but actually terrilene, in navy blue with yellow stripe. It still carries its ancient Cash's name tape, identifying the original owner as one justice. Maybe it was his house tie, or his colours. Either way, not a badge of identity to which I am entitled. I once worked with the actor Barry Justice, but I've no reason to think my tie was his. Still, it bestows on me a not unpleasing air of false pretences, 
though its main message these days must be that here is someone old-fashioned. In the two plays I've set in schools, 40 Years On, 1968, and The History Boys, 2004, the boys all wore school ties, which very few of them knew how to knot, the few who did coming up with a Windsor knot. At my own far-from-aspirational grammar school, this style was frowned on, and may even have been forbidden. Significantly, it's a fashion I associate still with footballers in Mufti. 27th of November Jonathan Miller, who died this morning, would have been the first to joke and grumble about sharing the ultimate limelight with a TV chef and an Australian poet and critic who was almost as articulate as he was. But there would be no jokes about the chief rabbi, who could imply that his flock might be daft enough to consult their consciences before not voting Labour. They were daft enough. The practitioners of organised religion were always high on Jonathan's list of undesirables, with whom he was ever ready to engage in argument. But he liked Anglican hymns, as long as he was far enough away not to take in the words, so it's not unfitting that his funeral should be in an outpost of the Church of England. Ours was a not unrivalrous relationship, with neither particularly generous about the other's work. Whereas a play or whatever on TV would invariably prompt a tipsy telephone call from Peter Cook with congratulations that one had got away with it yet again, Jonathan and I were less indulgent, tending to ignore each other's efforts. I never saw one of his operas, and I'm not sure he ever saw one of my plays. He did try, though, which is more than I did, and en route to the premiere of The History Boys, a traffic jam enabled him to abandon the car and the attempt in the middle of Waterloo Bridge. Still, I wouldn't even have tried. I learnt quite early on in our friendship not to discuss what I was working on, lest it turn out he knew more about the subject than I did, or seemed to. It was always difficult to tell Jonathan anything, only to remind him of it. Talking to Jonathan found its way into my work. Mr and Mrs T.S. Eliot saw beyond the fringe and said that Jonathan reminded them of Orton, and as such he crops up in the preface to my play The Habit of Art. Whiston was the first person to go to Iceland, did you know that? And Christopher Columbus didn't discover America. Whiston did. That was Jonathan. Now that he's gone, I feel remorse as well as sorrow. But jokes apart, it was a question of survival. I needed to write... Jonathan needed one to listen. December the 13th, London It's a gang, not a government. Sure, he smells, but you can get used to anything.